Hello everyone and welcome to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard, your source for the best in RPG interviews. I am Dungeon Master and Coffee Fiend Ryan Howard, and welcome to today's episode. Uh, today, uh, we have yet another member of the Frog God Games family who has landed on the lily pad that is Rollin' Bones. This is the fastest turnaround I have ever had for a guest. We are talking to none other than the COO of Frog God Games, Zach Glazer. And uh, this was a, a really interesting conversation. It It's one of those where at first I did not know how the episode was going to go, what really we were going to end up talking about, because uh, I had just spoken to Zach on Facebook just three days before for the first time. Casey Christofferson actually introduced the two of us to each other after I had Casey on the show, after I put out his his episode. And uh, I, I needed a guest for this week, and thankfully uh, just happened to work out that, that Zach could come on the show. And our conversation took several interesting turns. Uh, my favorite part of the episode is probably the part where we start discussing virtual reality and augmented reality and how that will impact Dungeons & Dragons kind of moving into the future as that technology becomes more readily available. Uh, but I will save all of that for the episode. I uh, just want to remind everyone that uh, Frog God Games has uh, right now on Indiegogo an adventure based around Thanksgiving. And that will be, uh, that is called Feast of the Gobbler. It is written by Casey Christofferson. Uh, that's a, another thing that, that Casey and I talked about and, and Zach and I talk about a little bit. It's It sounds really fun and really interesting if my family cared at all about Dungeons and Dragons, then I would uh, get it and force everyone to play it. Unfortunately, I am the only D&D player in my family, so there's that. Uh, I also want to remind everyone that next week's episode with uh, with Daniel Fox is going to be the last episode uh, before Thanksgiving. We're going to take a week-long break for Thanksgiving just because I'm going to be out of town, and then we will do... Uh, Looks like three episodes in December, and then I'm going to shut it down for the last two weeks of December, or the last week and a half of December. And once the new year comes around, I will be back to doing uh, regular episodes. Uh, there's going to be a lot of changes coming in the new year. I am going to be starting up a website for the show to host all the different affiliate links and, and stuff like that, and, and do some advertising for our guests. I'm hoping to incorporate some kind of video component that's going to live on YouTube and also be available on the website. Basically, I'm going to be overhauling the way that this podcast works a, a little bit. It's still going to be based around interviews and, and stuff like that, but I'm hoping to add value to the podcast and to create kind of a, a landing page for all of you who are fans of the show. And, you know, at, at that point, maybe I can start, you know, posting adventures that I write, assuming that I can write adventures at all. I don't want to promise too much, but I'm definitely wanting to expand kind of the Rollin' Bones brand, maybe even add t-shirts. That would probably be the next logical step, is creating some kind of Rollin' Bones t-shirt for those of you in the Rollin' Bones family who want to represent the podcast at the, the conventions that you're going to and, you know, just around your friends and stuff. It'd be a really cool kind of low-key design. Don't want to make anyone feel too nerdy out there. Uh, but yeah, I, I definitely want t-shirts. I'm working on a new logo design. I've, I've contacted someone about about making a new logo. And so a lot of that stuff is going to be coming uh, in the new year. You guys have heard me ramble long enough, so let's get down to it. The main event for today's show, 
that being our interview with Zach Glazer of Frog God Games. I hope you all enjoy it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, in what has to be the fastest turnaround for getting in touch with a guest and bringing them on the podcast, we have uh, three days here, but I am I am sitting here with the uh, the COO of Frog God Games, ladies and gentlemen, Zach Glazer. Hello, everybody. It's the fastest turnaround for me ever as well. It was a uh, <laughs> star-crossed. <laughs> yep, absolutely. It was meant to be. It was in the dragon bones. Yeah, I, I we just got back from Gamehole Con, and uh, I was spoken to briefly by Casey Ostrovson, and uh, I'm only in town for two days, <laughs> and then I'm leaving again. And then, uh, so this it was actually perfect. So it's been great. So mm-hmm. Yeah, as, as you guys know, Casey was on last week, and he... As soon as the episode went up, he was just like, "Hey, I can I can get you connected with with this guy and this guy and this guy." Just a whole list of of people that that would make for really interesting episodes, and you were on that list. And he said, "I'm talking to Zach right now," and so he gets the two of us connected. My, no, my, I worked out well. So Casey's yeah, my, a good guy. He, he does amazing work. Absolutely. The guest I was hoping to bring on was not able to come on. So Tom from Knights and Nerds, this is your official public shaming. <laughs> Well, he didn't get replaced with anybody that good, so he's pretty sure we're good about that. (laughs) All right. Well, well, Zach, we are going to start this episode the same way we start all these episodes. I ask everyone these questions. So first and foremost, Zach, how did you get into RPGs? Well, uh, in two stages. First, when I was a kid, um, I begged and pleaded my mother to buy me an Earl Otis DX box set and was played uh, almost consistently right through high school when I about the time I got a girlfriend and then didn't play again for 20 years and then uh, I was sitting in the subway in uh, San Francisco where I was living at the time and uh, had a uh, bored moment with an iPhone and typed in vintage Dungeons and Dragons and uh, out of nowhere uh, suddenly I realized that people did care about Balthazar and we're all into the Hidden Shrine and uh so I decided that a bucket list thing my whole life was to print, uh, publish a module. So I actually wrote one and did that. It was going to be a 16 page gatefold module. It became a giant box set <laughs> full of like 96 different components. All of them from the little tiny tails on the devil miniatures all the way over to, you know, dice, dice bag cards. If it could fit in a box, I made it and did it. And, um, I did that, and I got nominated for a couple of Ennies, and I was like, this is kind of fun, though it's not making me any money. And uh, But it was, it was good times. So I did a, a couple of other modules and another box set, and one night I was sitting <coughs> at GameholeCon, and Bill Webb from Frog God Games told me he was going to buy my company, which at the time I thought, well, it's not really worth anything. Why are you, what are you buying? It's basically me. So I became an owner at Frog God Games. Um, I was hired to write, and I haven't written anything yet. But uh, I do a lot of the... I do both the behind the scenes work. Gotcha. I do things like I make sure that um, stuff goes out on time. Our production schedules followed. We have a, a large list of what it is. You know, when we have so many books going out, um, someone has to oversee most of that. And so I do a lot of delegation behind the scenes. I don't do a whole lot of uh, front end creator stuff, though. In fact, they took away my last job, which was making virtual tokens. They took it away from me. Because I'm too busy, <laughs> so so basically, I I help Bill Webb run Frog Eye Games now, and gotcha. so we're 
we're a pretty big company that we make lots of books, um, a lot of good books. And uh, we're real proud of how well they turn out. We have great authors like Casey Kristofsson, Tom Knauss, um, Matt Finch, who's one of our partners, does a lot of Swords and Wizardry work for our second game system. Um, we have about 48 to 52 people that we pay in some capacity to make sure that we create the games that we do. So of all the games that you've played over the years, um, what game system is your favorite? Yeah, well, um, to be honest with you, it's probably a mishmash of older D&D. Um, I really like our Swords of Wizardry system because it's a lot like, except for the saving throws, which I actually like better. Because mm-hmm. I, I loved AD&D, but I never played AD&D like it was written mm-hmm. at all. Nobody really did. Um, but I play other games that really affected me a lot, but it would be a, like a BX D&D kind of. Um, other systems that mattered to me, though, were like Merp um, from Iron Crown. I uh, really liked... Uh, the traveler stuff, you know, the, the standard stuff. A lot of times people don't really remember the, the very first character that they played, but who is the first character that you remember playing? The first memorable I can remember my first one. that you played? Oh, I go remember for it, my then. very first one. It was a magic user. I picked the spell light. Turned out I was completely useless, but it seemed <laughs> like fun at the time. He lasted uh, two sessions. Um, I don't remember his name, but he was, he's lamented. So it was in the, it, from the BX set. So Gotcha. As players and as GMs over the years, we all kind of develop our own styles of play. How would you describe your style of play, both as a player and a GM? I don't GM a whole lot, to be honest gotcha. with you, uh, anymore. I used to. Um, I'm pretty flexible. I prefer the rules, kind of our guidelines. I A really clever idea will never be stopped because a rule says you can't. Mm-hmm. Um, as a player, I kind of play the same way. I'm not... I tend not to play really uh, complicated classes because I think that it requires me to read too much. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a lot of games I play are one-offs mm-hmm. at conventions, or I have a, do have a game I'm playing right now on Fantasy Grounds as a player, and I picked a fighter just because it was the easy way. And that's, that one's a, a fifth edition, which I really like. Mm-hmm. Um, it w- if it was my go-to to run my home, I would run a, a lighter version of it, but I do like fifth edition a lot, so... So you, you kind of seem to be the exception to the rule. I found in doing the show a lot of times people who kind of work on the back end of RPGs are the perma-DMs. Yeah, and that's – a lot of that I think is due to the fact that I hadn't really played since college. I'm comfortable running games. I ran my my own system, my own, my own game <laughs> at Gary Con and North Texas RPG Con, various places I went when I ran my own company. Um, honestly, it comes down to time. Um mm-hmm. I work a lot of hours every day uh, doing spreadsheets, doing emails, doing all kinds of stuff that requires me to be constantly away from things. And I can't really commit to setting up a game that I want to run. <laughs> yep. Yeah, my my wife is an operations person as well, so I, I'm i very familiar with the uh, the amount of time that, that goes into that kind of work. No, and I, I don't mean it's not like a, a complaining. It's actually oh, great. I love good. working in games and doing all those things, but it's an interesting. I didn't think jobs like this existed, but I'm actually a full time guy. So mm-hmm. um, there are about more, there are probably more astronauts than, full, than there are full time guys in RPGs, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, I feel lucky. And I, I the partners I work with are great. They're real smart. They uh, they we balance each other very well. We're, we're kind of founded like a law firm, so we have six people who are owners and. Each of those guys are guys that I respect and really happy to work with, and we have people we work with that I'm just always impressed by. So this really is a good thing. Over the years, we all kind of develop these these 
really great memories associated with RPGs. Can you think of your fondest RPG memory? Honestly, opening uh, opening uh, stuff that I've purchased as a kid that I either repurchased or see again. Um, love that stuff. I just love I love the product and the way it looks and the way it reads and everything else. Like an actual game moment, I can remember so many like times I cheered as a kid as we played. I mean, you literally mm-hmm. cheered and you jumped up. I can't tell you what we did, but I'm sure it was really smart, clever, and successful. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, it's mostly the people that I remember most from the games, and the, my interaction with them is what matters to me the most. Well, uh, speaking of interactions with people in the game, uh, over the years, I mean, there's some great people that we share the table with, but there are also some kind of crappy people. <clears throat> and the, uh, the the crappiest tier of people we have, as a collective, reserved the term that guy for. So, Zach, what is your best or worst that guy story? The worst that guy story is somebody that is fairly well known that I won't name. It was an embarrassing game where uh, something was said to a, uh, a female waitress mm-hmm. that just made me cringe. Oh, it was awful. And uh, just knowing that kind of had the same job I did really bothered me. <laughs> that was the worst. That guy was like actually offensive. Mm-hmm. Other than that, I mean, players that are annoying, most of them after a while, I kind of get, get in the groove. I see what it is that they're into, what they like. And most of the time, I can play around that. I don't mind if someone has to have gold or has to win. I don't have to win. I just want to play. <laughs> so, And over the years with, with RPGs, it seems like some things just kind of come with the territory. Some some things just come with playing D&D and RPGs. Some of those things we grow to love. Some of them we kind of hate. So what's your, your least favorite RPG cliche? Least favorite cliche? Rolling dice in the open. Uh, people that demand that the dice control everything. Mm-hmm. So roll, like GMs who have a screen, but they insist that all dice rolls are seen. You know, it's about the experience, and I like to make sure that's the focus and not... Uh, I mean, war games still exist as a hobby for a reason. <laughs> so, it, probably that. Are you are you the kind of GM, when you do GM, or do you prefer the kind of GM that will, like, roll all the dice themselves? Um, you no. Know, uh, in fact, gotcha. I, I sometimes see that rolling dice is a failure. Uh, I would, I'd much rather grant a, hey, you know, how are you going to get around that trap? And... Well, we're going to, you know, put weight on the plate. We're going to go around. We're going to do it. And it, mm-hmm. clever thinking, I think, is its own reward. And so, a lot of times, you can go a long time before you need to roll dice. Um, it, 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 but also depends on the group. But in general, I think that uh, it's a lot more fun to describe and be clever. Oh, don't tell, don't tell the Pathfinder Society I said that. <laughs> they might come get me. We've had very few Pathfinder people on the show, and that's just a product of I am more of a D and D guy than a Pathfinder guy. I've actually yeah. never played Pathfinder, so... I have, and I, you know what? With the right GM, you wouldn't tell the difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, once you make a... If someone gave you a character sheet and you had the right GM, it's fundamentally... It's such a similar game, but making the character and going through the stats and everything else is a different thing. Yeah. And uh, Pathfinder is a wonderful game for those who don't understand it. But... Uh, <laughs> and we sell lots of Pathfinder first edition stuff still, but um, in general, I'm D&D guy too. Now, uh, this last question here, this one has stumped some some previous guests. Um, you've actually been brought up in, in this segment on the uh, the Skeeter Green episode. Oh, good God. That we did. Whatever he said to lie. <laughs> no, I'm, you think I'm kidding, but I'm not. 
And the answer to this question, Zach, can be as philosophical or sophomoric as you want. But if you could put anything on a T-shirt, what would it be? I think I own the T-shirt. I put the Litany of Fear from Dune. Nice. Uh, the fear is a mind killer. I should, you know, it'll pass over me and through me, and all, and only I will remain. Right? You no, know, yeah, definitely. I had that shirt. It's great. Gotcha. <laughs> gotcha. I just wanted to to preempt the the goddamn it Zach story because no, I took. <laughs> I'll, let me tell my version of that story. One Go day I woke up and went to the booth, and there there was a bunch of people wearing my shirt with my name on it saying, God damn it. Since then, that number has grown to a very large number of people. And at this point, it's out of my control. And you know what? Just roll with it. Mm-hmm. That's my advice to anybody who has that happens to them. When it happens to somebody else, allow me to tell you, just roll with it because it's much easier. <laughs> it's like suddenly it's somebody, they don't even get any money. It's my IP. I mean, honest to God. <laughs> It's like one day just randomly finding out you've become a meme. Yeah, no, except the thing is that the memes keep, I mean, I, I was just a game old con, and there were shirts everywhere. There were people making their own that say things like, gosh darn it, Zach, he's a nice guy, which I thought was really nice. <laughs> but when people are making extra shirts to like the shirts that people already made about you, when what you do is mostly in obscurity, is a lot. There, there are bootlegs of Skeeter's bootleg shirt? Yes, there are. <laughs> That's fantastic. No, and it's, but none of us get any money from it, especially me. <laughs> It's like we had uh, we had Andrew E. Gaska on the show, who's uh, who's working on the Alien RPG right now. I appreciate um, that. Absolutely, that that game looks like a ton of fun. But he's a he's a comics creator, and one of the uh, one of the covers for one of the books that he worked on ended up on one of those like fake uh, Facebook T-shirts that you see all the time. No, oh, yeah, I, I, the ones that I've actually bought a few of those. I feel terrible about it, but mm-hmm. God, I can't help it. Emmercool's awesome, man. Yeah. And it, the last, his last ride was important. Mm-hmm. I saw that T-shirt and I said, "I'm sorry, Tramp." I am. <laughs> but he but, saw one that had his name on it, and he bought it. And people were like, "They're, they're taking money from you." He's like, "Guys, if they were selling T-shirts of my stuff, I wouldn't see any money from it anyway. I just no, want a shirt with my name on it." No, it, it, I, I get where he's coming from, and honestly, we don't actually rent art or IP ever because we cannot keep track of it, and we are not a big company. Mm-hmm. I mean, larger companies. I bet Wizards of the Coast would be hard pressed. Just look at a piece of art and go, hey, it's ours. They can guess on big iconic ones, but there's lots of art that, I don't know. I asked Larry Elmer one time, like, where can you get a list of every art piece you ever did? And he laughed in his Kentucky accent so loud. <laughs> so I have no idea. I don't even recognize my own stuff half time. Huh? You know. Yep. So, yeah, T- T-shirt thing doesn't surprise me. That's why it wasn't horribly broken when I bought it. Yeah, La- Larry's a great guy. I enjoyed having him on the show. Yeah, he's a, he's a number one dude. Mm-hmm. Going all the way back to what you said kind of earlier on in the podcast, you said it was always a, a dream of yours to publish a module. Where did that dream start for you? Dragon Magazine. I started Dragon Magazine because they were announcing Dungeon Magazine. And there was an ad for writing submission. Of course, I was overenthusiastic, undereducated, and just not prepared to do one. But I thought about it all the time. And what happened was I got like actually almost terminally sick in 2009. Got much better. See? Got better. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, it was then I'm like, well, I'm gonna, if, if I'm going to do this stuff on my list, I better start. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote Whisper and Venom, which was my first box set then. And, uh, we'll probably, we're actually re-releasing that in the spring as a five year measure. So, but yeah, um, it just was like, I saw the design, they gave a, a, uh, you sent you back self-addressed stamped envelope for those of you who are old enough to know what that means. Um, <laughs> They sent you a Xerox copy of these, uh, you know, simple written instructions with a piece of art. Um, 
and it was the basics of dungeon design for publication. So I read that 50 times. And what's funny is Wolfgang Bauer has almost the exact same story as me <laughs> on that part, except he actually submitted it when he was young. And I mm-hmm. It seems like all these all these adventures that that we read and and run for our players kind of seep into how we design our adventures now. So what adventures do you feel like had kind of that influential impact on you? Well, I'll tell you one that didn't. It was the Tome of Horrors. I mean, the Tome of Horrors. Yeah. Only because are we had a terrible time when we played that. Everybody died and got mad at each other and left. Um, <laughs> but, uh, no, um, honestly, um, some of the earlier um, Iron Crown stuff did because it was a lot simpler. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, and it's heavily influenced by the maps. Um, Peter Fenland, who never... He went on to create Catan, which, you know, no big deal there. Um, <laughs> but at the time, was doing the maps for, <laughs> for Murph, and they were awesome. Mm-hmm. And I would look into a map and stare at it. And, like, same with the Greyhawk map by Darlene. It's on my wall, actually. Um, stare at it and the picture <clears throat> what was there, what was right beyond the borders. And it would start me thinking. And so when I did mine, I started with a map. And I just think that that's kind of the way I designed stuff based on what was to me, the most fascinating parts of the modules that I'd seen published. Gotcha, gotcha. So I'm relatively new to the whole RPG world. I only started playing just right around three and a half, four years ago. So a lot of my discovery of of RPGs and stuff has been exploring backwards. (laughs) And a lot of what I'm seeing is there's a ton of cool art and cool maps and stuff like that in a lot of these books and I I feel it when I when I look at these books especially now I'm I'm running a Dark Sun game in right on. edition I have that in French <laughs> I collect I'm sorry I collect foreign editions I get all excited when that kind of happens anyway gotcha. yeah we, I mean we can definitely talk about Dark Sun no no I'm just talking, but yeah Dark Sun mm-hmm. which Anthony Pryor is awesome who wrote a lot of that so mm-hmm and, but yeah, just looking at the stuff, I can see how like DMs at the time would be like, "Oh, I, I got it now. I know what I'm doing." Because I'm like, I see, I see that stuff, and I'm like, "Oh, this is Mad Max. Nice. Let's do this." Yeah, they did a wonderful job on setting stuff. They really did. I love Dark Sun. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that one up. So I guess along the same lines, what do you think makes for a good setting for for an adventure? Uh, it depends on whether it's for a publication or for your own homebrew. Um, there's a real big difference, except that fundamentally, it has to be recognizable enough and as a shared experience amongst everybody so you can all leap into it. Like, Sky Realms of Jeroon is an awesome RPG with great... Miles Tevis are awesome. Mm-hmm. Nobody can play it. Same with Petal Throne. Because you have to have bought into the books and the lore and everything else to really enjoy it as a character and feel like you've grown up there. Whereas like fantasy D&D, we all know enough about Arthurian legends and we know enough about now the Lord of the Rings because of the movies. And you kind of have a shared experience where you go to Western style fantasy and you can just kind of jump right in. And like, that's why I think that a lot of times, Legends of Five Rings is a great game. It's still a hard sell. It's a hard sell because I think Japanese culture is mostly inscrutable unless you were born in Tokyo or Edo or we know at the time. (laughs) But, um, and I think that Weird RPG settings are really cool as long as you have the group that buys in. Like, I love post-apocalyptic stuff. And I've had groups that play it all right. Um, like Star Wars, West End Star Wars, awesome. Why? Because everybody in the whole world, Star Wars was more than Arthurian Legends. 
um, you know, was something we all knew, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Miller's role-playing wasn't bad for the same reason, but, like, you know, I look at, like, stuff that I think is awesome, like, uh, that's a good example, I'm looking at my shelf, I can see, um, oh, like, Boot Hill. We weren't, from my age forward, it, Westerns were not as much of a shared culture as they were when that was written by Brian Bloom. Mm-hmm. And so it's harder, I think, to have a Western gunfighter game now in our culture with younger people than it is to have a game with a sword and sorcery. Mm-hmm. And I just I find that interesting. But yeah, settings have to be recognizable. They have the shared experience, um, even in home campaigns. So that that's le- that's looser for a published campaign. They have to not only be that they have to do the fine line between. Is it too much information? Am I just doing this because I like to write a bunch of words for three cents a word? Or is it because it actually is useful information that gives you just enough to know what it is but leaves you the space to make it your own in a way that you can do yourself? And that's why settings are hard and why some of the TSR settings were awesome. Dark Sun's a good one to, to, to go with because it was evocative with the, with the bronze art and all the different choices like wow this is really scary this yet it was not so specific that everybody could jump in and say well you can't do that because those guys can't ride those kind of you know slugs <laughs> you name it right yeah and so uh it, that's the harder part with the publishing one but still the key is the shared experience we have, if you don't have a shared experience like even like i can sit at a table and play with an eight-year-old mm-hmm. and we can play D in a way that almost any other game is hard to replicate Definitely. plus that's it has to have it has to have gnomes or it's no good. <laughs> well, I mean, you say that, but we were just talking about how great Dark Sun is. <laughs> no, I know. Okay. I I actually I make fun. My company that I had when I did uh, Whispering Venom and uh, Death and Taxes, my two big boxes, uh, was called Lesser Gnome. Gotcha. And so anybody who knows me, that was a that was a stab in their eye. Mm-hmm. Skeeter Green, for example. Kind of looking at what what you guys have going on over at Frog God, if you could pitch one product to someone who's never cracked open a Frog God book, what would it be? Tome Adventure Design. Gotcha. Piece of cake, because what that is, is that that's a key into the way that uh, company founders look at designing adventures. Matt Finch wrote the book, and it's fantastic. It's all about how to design a world to, um, to make compelling stories in a way that is not linear, so it has tons of tables to where, okay, you need an antagonist, you need a reason, you need a your goal. All MacGuffin designs for adventures, it's in a book, it's about now nah, 250 pages maybe, mostly all tables, and uh, just fantastic. And it gives you an idea of where we come from for everything else we do. Gotcha. So definitely that. Gotcha, and that's the Tome of Adventure Design you said? The Tome of Adventure Design. We gotcha. call it Toad internally. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's a great book. It's uh, It has just... Everything from like what you find in a, in, a, in a lab all the way down to things like really fundamental. What are your arcs? What is the, you know, what fundamentally, what do you want your campaign to, how you want it to go, right? So it's all in there and it's really fantastic. Now, I've had a lot of people on the show w- representing a lot of different companies from Pinnacle to Green Ronin to some other smaller independent companies yeah. that are that are just getting off the ground. What is it about Frog God that you feel is unique in this RPG market? Um, quality, of the, uh, quality of our books, our printed books, um, is something that it doesn't get replicated even, I think, by the biggest publishers because we spend a lot of money to make sure that... We make big books. We have some books that are over 1,000 pages. Um, mm-hmm. And 
they are triple bound, clay coated pages, gloss print. I mean, if you can do it to a book and it doesn't involve gold gold leaf, um, we usually do it. And so, and we we stand by it to the point where, if you bought a book from us twelve years ago and the binding breaks, we will replace that book if we have it in stock, for free. And then we give a PDF with every book that you buy from us because honestly. We want you to enjoy the book. We also want you to do fast searching. We want you to have all the stuff that you get with modern stuff, but it's still pick up the book because we are all from the age, all of us, the owners there are the age where the smell of new book is one of the best smells in the world, man. Mm-hmm. It's like fresh bread, but better because it lasts longer. <laughs> gotcha. Absolutely. We do that. Yeah. I mean, we have some of the best writers, I think, in the industry that work with us, but a lot of those guys work for lots of people because they're really good and talented and you don't always have time to hire everybody all the time you want, but like Stephen Winter work, works with us. We've had writing, but you know, Anthony Pryor who did a lot of the Dark Sun stuff. He works with us. Um, Chase Wachowski has written about ten thousand things since two thousand one. He, you know, he works with us and just great people doing great stuff. So the content's there, and we want to make sure it comes in a form that we're really proud of. My boss shakes books actually. He'll go on podcasts and video casts and grab a book by its binding and just shake it. <laughs> and uh, it drives me crazy because I'm always sure the one time he does that it's going to be like you know somebody fails the Pepsi challenge back in the day, right? Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. I like this one, it's Coke. Mm-hmm. No, but it's uh, it never they never break. They actually we've shot them with guns, um, and actually we know that a a, a, a uh, was a, 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 a forty five takes out our best biggest book, but nothing else will basically. Gotcha. <laughs> That's my boss. He did not me. I don't actually own any weapons. <laughs> gotcha. So, so for those of you out there, um, looking to, to go into combat, bring a frog God book with you. It's better than Kevlar. As... <laughs> better than Kevlar. AC two, man. Well, AC 18, if you were new, like the rest of you people, but AC two for those of us back in the day. <laughs> yeah. But as long as they don't have a 1911, you should be good. <laughs> should be. Yeah. Aim for the feet. No, <laughs> No, but honestly, we care a great deal about that because honestly, when you're, they're expensive books to make, they're expensive books to print, they're expensive books to sell. We understand that, we stand by them, but they're beautiful books. Mm-hmm. We just did Sea King's Malice with Alex Cameron, who's the uh, runs Gamehole Con, and it's it, it is just absolutely lovely. Now that we're on the subject, you know, we're talking a lot about kind of the the physical medium of RPGs, and in this digital world. It seems to me like a lot of people are really clinging to, to actual physical books and, and media. We're dying off. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I think that we'll see a heavy push to digital. We're, we think a lot about things like we make collector's edition versions. I, it may not be long before that's all there is. Um, mm-hmm. It is changing. I mean, it, it used to be it was terrible to read books on tablets. Now it's pretty easy. Um, but we do cling to them, and I think part of it is nostalgia. Part of it is, is a shared experience at a table. It's not as fun to pass a tablet to the guy next to you to show you something than flip through the book and hand the books. Um, it's not, you feel somehow more robust when you design a dungeon on your desk with books than you do with a computer. Mm-hmm. And so Absolutely. I just think that's part of it. In my observation, I've seen a lot of a lot of companies now kind of leaning on, leaning on physical stuff. Like my, my friend DM Dave just put out he's now got a an actual physical and I'll, I'll hold it up to show you it's a physical fifth edition magazine that comes out every month like hard the man has made that possible man yeah one of the greatest things that has happened to us that wasn't available as much when i first started in 2012 it was available but it was harder to use harder to find fewer companies now print on demand is piece of cake and it is 
you can do anything from taking Word files and just printing a PDF to you can have a softbound version for campaign charts to all the way to you can make beautiful hardcover books that are they're almost there. I mean, we think about this sometimes, and we do actually for shipping overseas, we do make POD books. But in your in your observation, it seems like in a few years it'll all be except for super boutique items like those collectors. Yeah, yes and no. You'll get POD books mm-hmm. because those are made when you want them. Um, and, but you won't see as many large shipment shipping containers coming from overseas. Gotcha. There'll be fewer actual printed, like high-end books on glossy pages. Because what the one business we have anything in common with with printing is textbooks. We are just like textbooks in terms of we have art, we have charts, we have all the kinds of things you would see in a math textbook separately. Mm-hmm. But but you know what I mean when you open the glossy pages and you have the pho- photographs say in a book of geography class or whatever maps. Um, those types of books that are high quality printed are probably never going to be replicable on print on demand because they require just a little too much hand work to make, check the stitches and check the binding. And like there's four or five back and forth with us and the printers in China. Those, yes, they'll be limited. They'll be fewer number and they'll become boutique, which is a great word for it. Mm-hmm. But books themselves, because print on demand is just so damn easy. Um, I think we'll see lots of books at a lower price point. Well, that's not even like price point at a lower overall cost to create available when you want them but i don't think that it will be lots of will have lots of different books and not lots of the same ones how's that do you think there's going to be a lot more drive towards stuff like D beyond and like application based gaming yes i do i think that things like fantasy grounds are a big deal my other hobby is a uh, virtual reality stuff gotcha. um, i don't make anything but i certainly use it all the time and uh I know that Fantasy Grounds Unity, because it's built in the Unity engine, allows for the creation of three spaces. Now, that won't probably be there at launch and be available or easy, but I think that the digital spaces are going to become so good that you won't need a physical book because you'll be in a space where you can pick one up. And I backed that Tilt 5 uh, campaign for the virtual board games just because I want to see what that is like there, how close it is to done. But you'll be eventually be able to pick up in your hand. You won't feel it, really. But you'll pick up and see books and be able to actually make gestures to turn pages. And, and I think that as it gets, it's better. In, in the four years I've owned VR headsets, the difference is immense. And I think that that's going to become more and more of a thing with AR, the, alter, the augmented reality stuff for our game, yep. in a way that we don't even comprehend yet. I've seen demos and I've seen cool things happen with the Microsoft HoloLens and stuff. And... I want to be there for it. I hope I live long enough. (laughs) So far, so good. (laughs) I've talked about this a little bit on the show with a guest named uh, Sandra Luketic, who runs a a website called Pixel Opinions. And it seems to me like kind of the not-too-distant future semi-sci-fi solution for for RPGs is we're going to be wearing these VR headsets, but looking at these fully rendered worlds that that people have created do you do you think that's uh do you think that's feasible within um i'll be honest 30 with you, I years think, well i think you how many years 30 30 yeah i think 30 probably but what you'll see is a lot more of a legos i think of it as digital legos is what you'll see gotcha. like you see guys who make stl files with 3d printers now i mean think back to it as a kid when i was a young man in the early 80s if you told me i could print a dungeon in my bedroom I would have thought that my life was over and I was the happiest guy on the planet because it's amazing. We can do that now and there's nothing and you put those dungeons together any way you want to make what you want for your game. 
The same thing's going to happen with three with parts that are three D um, bits. Basically, you have terrain, you'll have creatures, you'll have effects, you'll have all those different things you get put together, and you put them your way in your world, and then you open it up for anybody else to share it and see it. And I think you'll see because nerds have a tendency to want to out nerd each other. Yes. If I have my nerd home on my little VR area, and my nerd home is my campaign, I want every other nerd in the country to come see how awesome I am. Right. Um, we're going to use our own inability to not compete to be able to create spaces like that um, at a pretty low cost and I think we'll see it sooner than later and the good thing is once you have something in 3D digital it could be any size you want it to be right mm -hmm. and so as long as it has the poly counts low uh, you can do everything from print it to stand in it like I actually took files from uh, Tom Tullis he's the, uh, the CEO of Fat Dragon Games who makes lots of the Dragon Lock pieces I took a piece of uh, a piece and I like you know went into my headset and I spray painted on it like I was tagging, right? And yep. I can do that now with not a lot of work. It won't be long until we'll be able to take pieces, we'll be able to change their scale, change their etchings. We can make maps in one software and we can lay them on tables that we have in places we invite people to play games. It's going to be awesome. And then we can not just do that, but we can then switch to an AR system where we're at a table. We're using that same design that I'm sitting in my room for the table scaled down so we all have a shared experience with see-through glasses where you can see an augmented reality going on. It'll be kind of a combination of that badass Chewbacca Han Solo game in Star Wars yep. and uh, that, what you see on Fantasy Grounds now. That's what I think. Gotcha. Of course, I hope for it, too. I mean, I have five VR headsets, and I only have one head. So, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm a little overly enthused, so I would take with that with a grain of salt, too. The next question that I have for you, kind of, kind of regarding that, um, there is a certain inherent social aspect to role playing. With a lot of that technology coming in, do you do you have any fear that maybe that that social aspect will kind of fade away from role playing, or do you think it's inherently has to be there? I think it has to be there, or I'll be playing Skyrim. I mean, I, that, that's a quick answer to it. I think that what makes what makes Tabletop role playing still around, as opposed to they were in the eighties. It was a fad, you know. I see like when Fourth Edition came out, fads over. Role players World of Warcraft now. Well, I look at Blizzard. I don't. I don't envy them. Um, we're still here, uh, and we're making games because we sit either across table or better and better now with internet connections and you know uh, voice voice interaction, and everything else. You are able to do things you cannot replicate with AI that I don't think you will be able to do in my lifetime, and the feeling that you know you're talking to a human that you know, whether in person or online, is just, a, it's a satisfying need of humanity to interact. And by doing so in person or by people you know real close, not social media, but like talking like games and such, you not only feed that need, you feed it for others in a way that makes for the shared experience that we crave. And so I just don't think those are gonna, that part will go away. Plus, honestly, I've seen more I saw a Cthulhu game based on The Breakfast Club, a game will come, man. Tom Knauss wrote it. It was <laughs> awesome. I don't think anybody's going to design that for me in a big AAA game, right? right? We still have to have those to play that now. Now, uh, kind of switching gears entirely, I'm going to bring back an old question that I have not asked in a long time, but I feel like you're the man to, to kind of answer this question. If you could take any fictional universe that has not already received a... a an RPG or one that received one just a long, long time ago. Dune. And kind of make a new RPG for You said Doom? Dune. Oh, Dune. Dune. Gotcha. Frank Herbert. I don't think it'd sell well, but I want to make the best damn one that could ever be made. The other one would be Blade Runner. I think both, I think 
Dune would be interesting if you did a lot of factional and high-level politics stuff in a way that hasn't isn't able to be done easily in existing systems. And I think that uh, Blade Runner's got all over Cyberpunk. Sorry, Mike Pondsmith. <laughs> now, if I'm not mistaken, I, th- I think there is a Dune RPG coming. There is one. Some, yeah. From 2000 and I want to say two. I have a copy on my shelf. It's, it's good. It's also uh, it had an IP problem. And they didn't print very many of them. It wasn't a bad game, but nobody is actually... I bet I could count on all my fingers and toes the number of campaigns that have been run in that game in the past five years. Because it's so hard to get, it's so very expensive, and it's, it's a little esoteric. It's not quite as bad as, say, Skyrim's of Jerome, but it is not Star Wars. So the shared experience is harder, but I just absolutely love the, love the universe and think it has fascinating options. Plus, I have a Spacing Guild t-shirt. <laughs> so I'd be all set. <laughs> But no, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, I feel like someone is actually like someone has the license now and is doing another Doom. I think it probably is Gale Force Nine because they did the Dune board game recreation. Mm-hmm. Whether or not they actually are able to successfully turn that into a more properties, I'm pulling for them. I am because uh, I actually like the Dune board game. It's got the old one and the new one, mm-hmm. and I would love to see an RPG or even a. A quasi RPG game, like uh, kind of like uh, Descent, uh, um, those kind of large board games that have more components and more interesting strategy. I'd even play a skirmish game. I love the universe. I don't know what they're going to do with the license, but it's possible they can do more. But right now, it's just a reproduction of the 1977 game. Yeah, according to uh, this is a Gizmodo article, but apparently it, it's Gale Force 9, but they're also working with the team from, uh, oh, where was it? It was in Europe, we're in good shape. <laughs> uh, they're working with the team from uh, Modifius who did uh, Star Trek yep. Adventures and Tales they're awesome. Blue. They did, they did uh, the John Carter one I just bought. And that is the most fantastic looking RPG book I think I've ever seen. And that's the only one I've seen in five years that I wanted to steal from in terms of their production stuff. Mm-hmm. They did some amazing things that I didn't know were possible for smaller press uh, levels. But Modifius, that's the best news I've heard ever. That's awesome. I'm glad to learn that. <laughs> so... Do you have much anticipation? This is way off the topic of RPGs, but do you have a lot of anticipation for that the new Dune movie? Yes, only because the guy, uh, the casting has been so good, and, and the people behind it worked on the Blade Runner movie that I think was the best sequel ever made. So, I, I very recently read Dune for the first time, and I I fell in love with that world and was immediately enthralled with with everything that that. Herbert created there. Yeah, after Middle Earth, that's the only other one that I have. To, I really care about that much. I'm not really a Star Wars guy, though. I like Star Wars fine. I have nothing against the original movies. I loved them as a kid. Had an X-wing fire toy, whatever. Um, but I, I find that the Dune books have a sense of seriousness, uniqueness that cover human perspectives that are rarely covered, like religion, politics, and factional things, and things all about really deep philosophical things that aren't handled hokey. Now, it gets, they get weird, and they get a little bit, I can't follow anymore because there's so many people, because it's, it's like Song of Ice and Fire, but over 20, 20 billion years, right? Mm-hmm. Um, great stuff. I'm glad you like it, too, because we need more of us to sell that RPG. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I do feel like even if the movie... Even if the movie is not what everyone expects it to be, which I, I do have a lot of faith in the director, if it is a successful movie, there will be a ton more people who are now interested in that IP, and that means more people around to, to play an RPG or to 
just to to be interested in this this book that's kind of almost fallen into obscurity um aside from certain circles yeah heavy nerve ones <laughs> mm-hmm. no yeah. you're absolutely right and actually i read an article about that about eight years ago about how one of the, it's one of the books that didn't deserve the obscurity it got um i don't love the treatment of the the prequels um and such for the dune books only because they're like torture porn but they didn't bring the interest that i hoped it would to there i'm hoping the movie really does now, uh, kind of tying things back into the RPG realm, you, you talked a lot about how Dune explores the, the factional aspects of humanity and religion and politics. How do you feel like that? What do you feel like is the best way to tie that in that kind of stuff into a role playing game? Do you feel like that's stuff that can be easily dealt with? In, if in it's RPGs? shared, once again, it's a shared understanding of the universe. I think it can be done because if you understand the motivations, you can easily. You want to role play them? You can. I think that it would take a lot of maturity. I'm not sure we have as a market to be able to allow people to play the kinds of players that would be required to make a universe like that come to life. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly wouldn't run a good Dune game by the Bene Gesserit at any convention. I'd be afraid I'd get mobbed. <laughs> um, you know, but the fact that there are such imp- not important so much as such large concepts that can be explored, I think that you would be able to do so in ways because it, you would always have, you probably have to work for an organization to be one of the part of great schools. You'd have to make sure that you understood their motivations and your character motivation and have to actually use that as the center of your game more than the mechanics. Hmm. I mean, fighting games and dudes, the knife fighting is all done, right? I mean, it, I don't see the fighting as being near as important. There's no starship combat really to, to speak of. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, that's certainly. I, I mean, there are, there are certain types of players who would not be interested in a Dune game if that's what it takes to run one. I, I know several of them. No, I, and I'm not sure I would be every day either. I mean, you right. would have to prepare. You'd have to really, as a player, even I think you'd have to really want to be committed to not the small wins, but the big wins, or understand that losses are part of a story that is the reward. Mm-hmm. You know, because I think that one of the things about being human is under, is not every bit. Not everything that entertains you has to be, you know, Rick and Morty. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. can be, and I love Rick and Morty, but I mean, it, mm-hmm. it can also be very depressing and very, you know, like, so someone like Saving Private Ryan, when you watch the scenes, of the, I mean, you don't walk away, you're entertained, but not in the same sense. Right. And I think that we'd have to be willing to do that as an industry, is be willing to entertain in a way that is emotional and not necessarily spiritual but has those kind of elements that i don't think that would be easily shared without getting thrown out of a convention when the pitchfork in my ass so yeah well yeah and a convention's a little bit different from a home game and a no, convention you've you've got three hours plus if you're extremely lucky to entertain a whole bunch of people you've never met before no and, and that's why those themes don't belong somewhere like that right but I'm just saying, if that game became popular, people would try, and they would be less successful than they hope. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the the one time I ran a convention RPG, I basically created Die Hard, but in 5th edition. Oh, awesome. <laughs> I think if I run through the building, I could just see that now. Yeah. Like, machine gun the glass, man. That's That was actually a pretty clever RPG move right there. Getting back into the, the realm of, of work and, and Frog God games, what's coming down the pipe? Maybe that's that's been announced and is, is coming for this holiday season. What What is it that's coming out that you're excited for that you're able to talk about right well, now? Well, 
I'm excited for the Tome of Horrors um, 2020. We're running it now under a Necromancer Games brand mm-hmm. on a Kickstarter. That will be out early next year. I love monster books. Um, they're expensive to do, and I'm not always sure we're going to be able to do them um, just because the expense involved is high and the expectations for the art is high. But the flip side of that is, you know, they're beautiful books to read. Um, we have coming out, um, our world setting comes out. It'll be out early next year. That will go to our printer here in about a week. And uh, it's a long, by 800 pages, all about the settings that we've been using since 2001. Lots of things to pick from. Beautiful world map. Just gorgeous. Lots of money spent on that. Yeah. Right now we have available Teagle Manor, which is a re- redo of an old Judges Guild product from 77. And we have a map for that that we actually printed out in four large pieces that is 12 by 12. That's how sophisticated the map is. So we have a lot of fun stuff available. Cool. So as we're kind of running up against the the end of our time here, um, I'm going to go ahead and turn the rest of the episode over to you. Anything you want to promote, anything you've got coming up, any social media or anything like that you want to plug, uh, the floor is yours. I will not edit any of this out. (laughs) You may want to. We have a lot going on. Um, We own the brand Necromancer Games as well. That's where we came from. So we run concurrently. We have a Kickstarter going on and an Indiegogo going on. And we have... We're introducing lots of different ways to get uh, stuff out. And so we're doing a lot of things with Necromancer games that are unusual and different um, that we wouldn't normally do as a mainstream product. So we, we want to have the channel to do so. So right now, for instance, running right now, we have the uh, Tomo Horrors 2020 as Necromancer games on Kickstarter. And we're running the Feast of the Gobbler by Casey Christofferson. And that's the mm-hmm. Thanksgiving module. Because so last year we did How Orcas Stole Christmas, and it was vastly popular. So the Thanksgiving module is coming out, and that's currently on Indiegogo under uh, Frog God Games. And uh, other than that, we are www.froggodgames.com. Um, we have we sell our books. When you buy a book, you get a PDF with it. Um, we sell uh, on Fantasy Grounds. You can buy our adventures and try them. You see us on Humble Bundle every once in a while. When you see that, you should take advantage because it's hundreds of dollars of books for cheap. And... Uh, if you want to get in touch with us for any reason, you can get in touch with me directly at Zach at FrogGodGames.com, or you can go to our website. We have a contact form, and uh, we go to conventions. We go to GaryCon in North Texas, LongCon, uh, 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 TotalCon, more that I can't remember. <laughs> and so we're there. If you're at a convention, please say hi. Come by. We'd be happy to show you our stuff, and we'd certainly be happy to uh, discuss anything, because this is all about being around people that we understand, which is us. Gotcha, and I guess that that kind of brings up one last question before we uh, before we call it for today. If there's one or even one or two conventions that people don't really know about that you wish more people would go to, what would those be? The North Texas RPG Con is the first one, and the second one would be Telecon. And the reason I say North Texas is because it's a gathering of old school people that has so many special guests from back in the day. Like I met Darlene there, who did the Greyhawk map. And I met, that's where I first met, like, Frank Menser and Tim Kask and Jim Ward and Steve Winter and all the people that I admired as a kid, I got to meet them. If you want to go see people, like Larry Elmer was there last year, and uh, Jeff Easley goes there, uh, Jeff D goes there. Um, I recommend that because that's what we use as, like, our corporate convention. That's where we go to do uh, just, we have a corporate meeting there, and we just, we're not there to make any money. We're there to basically celebrate Frog God Games and meet the people that are our biggest fans, and that's where they go. Tolokan is just run by the nicest people on the planet. It's in the East Coast. It's real far for us. It's our, like, our headquarters is in Paulsville, Washington. I'm in Arizona. But we go out to Tolokan because they've run a con that's a lot of fun. 
we love sponsoring it and it's great and uh, i recommend that one they have a, just a good mix of games and it's great for families um yeah. finally the one thing i do want to mention that i did not mention is that we were one of the sponsors of the lost odyssey that's coming up this friday and i encourage anybody who's interested in seeing D become more mainstream and seeing it do a lot of good for people because it's worked with the american autism association mm-hmm. and that is a big deal we have a lot of people in our hobby that are on the spectrum that benefit from D. we'd like to have more people benefit from it and uh if you get a chance to watch the streamer if you're in the la area i encourage you to buy a ticket and go visit that so if you're there say hi to us we'll be there absolutely and this uh this episode will actually come out on saturday so hopefully oh well you guys then you can delete that out hopefully you guys will have all enjoyed that i'll put something up on my social media about that um if possible i'm going to try and jump on that stream as well i don't watch a lot of streams i actually don't watch a lot of actual play anything because i prefer to play D than to watch people play D, but it's for a good cause and i definitely encourage everyone i hope you guys enjoyed it um hopefully i'll i will be able to join that as, as we're recording this yeah i i think it's going to be a it was great yesterday. That's what I'll say now because it's the joy of, of <laughs> You guys would have loved it. <laughs> no, anyway. But I think it's we're starting as a hobby, grow up and do things, do big things for, yeah. for people. So, Absolutely. And and with all the, the kind of big name advocates that we have out there now, it, it it's really cool that we're able to, to now do stuff like this for, for good and, and to – kind of take these these rpgs and, and use them to help people kind of like uh even on the the smallest scale uh my friend josh and keith from uh, the heroes guild here in nashville it's no it's a, it, helping people is the best that you can do and that's where it comes back to what you said about social interaction across the table and we do that on the small scale all the time being able to help do that at a larger scale is great it's one of the reasons we work with humble bundle is because a large portion of that goes to a charity and we were responsible for almost $400,000 in charity going to help everybody from people getting prenatal visits all the way to people at the RAIN network and uh, some uh, hospice. I mean, lots of this is going on behind the scenes, and we're just it's nice to see us as a, an industry that can do that now. Ten years ago, we couldn't have given $5 for, free, for a Coke. And it's thanks to the streamer guys, and I don't watch them very often either, but with, they have brought attention to a game and made the game better, and hopefully they keep on doing it. Well, Zach, thank you for... for- agreeing to come on the show at the last minute it's been a lot of fun talking to you we we've covered tons of interesting ground that we haven't had the chance to talk about a lot on the show so thank you for for your contribution in that way well thanks for having me i i find i'm less interesting than i think so uh you <laughs> your artist could be the judge <laughs> well guys next week uh speaking of very large books that are beautiful we are having the uh, the creator of the Zweihander RPG Daniel D Fox on the show i'm looking forward to it you guys have heard him on Vintage RPG podcast as you've heard most of my guests on the Vintage RPG podcast but he's coming on and uh i'm excited to talk with him about the work that he's doing and and the idea of RPGs being published through kind of bigger name mainstream publishing houses now and and what those implications mean for our hobby uh but until then guys dms best of luck pulling one over on your players and players may the dice go your way when that dm pulls one over on you i'll see you next time gather round and listen to tales of great adventure and brave heroes tales of daring individuals fighting monsters and claiming treasure Tales of bards trying to get into the pants of savage beasts to avoid losing a fight. 
Tales of people drinking beer, eating pizza, and rolling dice. Tales of people losing their minds over the things that happen to people who only exist in their mind. This is Rollin' Bones, and I am Ryan Howard.